Hi, welcome back to Europe Chats with Jim Claus. Jim is TEPSA's Secretary General and former Director General at the General Secretariat of the Council of the European Union. In this episode, we will discuss the European legacy of German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Hello, Jim. Hello, Miriam. Angela Merkel has been governing Germany for the past 16 years. Her positions have had considerable impact on shaping the European Union as it is. Which of her two biggest achievements and two biggest failures would you identify at the beginning of this talk? The departure of Mrs. Merkel is a major event for the EU because of the importance of her country, because of her personality and because of the duration of her stay in power. Uh, this has meant that she has been a key player, a key actor in all the difficult choices which the EU has had to make over the last 16 years. I will answer your question, but I would maybe send a little warning before. I do not want to give the impression that I consider that her record is 50% good and 50% bad. I think that would be unfair to her. As the two biggest achievements uh, uh, of Mrs. Merkel and the EU, I would say, first of all, is saving the euro and uh, keeping Greece in the euro. And uh, secondly, I would say the massive recovery package that was adopted uh, towards the end of last year. On the former, I know that there was a lot of controversy, there was a lot of dithering, that uh, the Greeks were sometimes given the feeling that people were ganging up against them. But uh, in the end, frankly, what is important is that there was a deal made which saved the euro and kept Greece uh, within uh, the euro. Uh, concerning failures, I prefer maybe to use the term errors. I would say that the Wir schaffen das in the middle of the migration crisis in 2015 was maybe such an error, uh, especially since it was coupled to the unfortunate Commission proposal on obligatory or compulsory migrant uh, quotas, which was the wrong solution at the wrong time, and it led to deep divisions which we still haven't managed to overcome. I should, however, add immediately that Mrs. Merkel then played a key role in overcoming the acute migration crisis, including by strengthening our external borders. And she was highly instrumental in the very important deal which the Union did with Turkey to control the situation, uh, together with Prime Minister Rutte and with uh, President Tusk. A second criticism could be directed uh, against the way she announced, without any consultation, uh, dropping out of nuclear power after Fukushima. But I have to add here that the energy mix is a national prerogative. And it's for each country to decide whether they want to use nuclear or not. Simply, since it affects the others, maybe a bit more consultation uh, could have helped at the time. Well, you highlighted Mrs. Merkel's contribution to keeping Greece in the euro as one of her major successes. But many would see her legacy in Germany's insistence on austerity policies during the eurozone crisis. This led to grave economic consequences for the Union, to many years of high unemployment and low investment, especially in the South, and triggered a whole wave of euroscepticism. Um, Germany's influence in the Council and the European Council was massive. Some observers have compared the Council's intergovernmental rule to German dictatorship. What would be your take on this? I beg to differ, uh, first of all. I, I think there 
has always been a difficult debate within the EU uh, and in some countries, uh, and a very legitimate debate about how to run your economy. While some countries plead for a more Keynesian approach with relatively easy money, Germany and quite a few other member countries consider that it, in order to have sustainable growth, you need to control your deficits and your debt. This view has been dominant over the last years and also at the time of the creation of the euro because it's a view which was strongly held by the so-called net payers. So uh, it's quite normal that they should have had some weight. And this was basically uh, the frame of mind which dominated the euro when it was set up. Um, this became a treaty matter. It was also put into a rather strict uh, growth and stability pact. Uh, and of course, Germany has had a key role in this respect. But let's be honest, this was the price to pay to get the Germans to abandon the DMARC, which was for them a very, very difficult step. There is no dictatorship when every single country could in fact have stopped the train because you mustn't forget that treaty change is done by unanimity and by ratification in every single uh, parliament. Uh, and this is done by an intergovernmental conference. So there is no choice really there. Uh, you can try to change that possibly and decide that treaty change should be done by qualified majority voting, but I wish you good luck if you want to propose that because I don't see a single member country which would accept it. But the solution did exist. In order to provide Greece with emergency lending while not having to change the basic treaties of the Union, new mechanisms had to be created outside of the treaties. Wasn't Mrs. Merkel's government resisting the inevitable for too long? Shouldn't it have been much more straightforward to provide emergency support to Greece, which represents only about 2% of the EU economy? This is a difficult question to answer. It is clear that for many Germans, the difficulty which some member countries, including Greece, encountered in this crisis was due to the fact that maybe during the good times they hadn't constituted buffers which would give them more fiscal capacity in a period of crisis. Uh, now, they were certainly not completely wrong on this, but I would add that they were certainly not completely right either because, in fact, this was a crisis which hit all the countries whether they had run sound fiscal policies or not. It is true that what we could call German orthodoxy led to procrastination and an uh, insufficient initial response. I think that can be fairly, fairly said. The requirement imposed by the Germans that you would only intervene as a last resort to save the whole of the euro area was certainly not such a good idea. Um, now, again, in the end, the Germans and the Union did the right thing, and Mrs. Merkel played a major role, how slowly convincing the Bundestag and the citizens that this had to be done in the interest uh, of the Union. For instance, to give the European Central Bank the leeway to go to the limits of what the treaties allowed for, or to create a massive European stability mechanism with 750 billion euros behind it to help member states in difficulty. Without her action, I think we would not have been able to do this, and we would probably have lost Greece from the Eurozone, which would have led to a chain reaction, which in my view would have been terribly detrimental. Mrs. Merkel governed for four legislative periods since 2005. 
During all her terms, you were preparing the European Council summits. What were generally the attitudes of other heads of state and government towards her? How did her standing and influence in the European Council evolve over time? Mrs. Merkel came to power in 2005. This was a year, you may remember, when there was a very difficult debate about the new multiannual financial framework, which failed in the end to find a solution at the end of 2005 on the Luxembourg presidency. It was not the fault of the Luxembourgers, of course, I hasten to add. Mrs. Merkel was then very instrumental in finding a deal under British presidency, where as the biggest net payer, they were obviously a major player. Um, so in a way, she almost immediately made her mark in the European Council with her quiet authority, her knowledge of the files, and a very strong technical capacity. Now, right from the start, you could say that she convinced the other leaders that she meant business and that she could do business. She confirmed this during the German presidency in 2007, which was an outstanding presidency with two major advances. The first one is on moving forward in the fight against climate change in March 2007. And the second one was, of course, to agree collectively on a mandate for a new intergovernmental conference, which was going to transform the failed constitutional treaty into the Lisbon Treaty. As things went on, she more and more established uh, her authority. She was probably the most active and influential member of the club, working very hard behind the scenes, showing tolerance for the positions of the others, sometimes footing, putting her foot down when she had to, uh, and constantly trying to propose compromises. I remember her walking around in the room and going from one to the other with little slips of paper and saying, maybe we could do it this way or that way. So it was quite an interesting spectacle. She approached issues very rationally uh, and uh, with a method. The famous Wirtschaftenlass, which I mentioned before, was maybe an exception, because here it was a more spontaneous emotional reaction. It was also a purely moral reaction, with maybe the consequences not having been thought through entirely. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit more what was so damaging about the Wirtschaftenlass policy? Yes, Miriam, uh, because it was damaging, I think, because it unintentionally gave the impression that Europe could absorb any number of migrants crossing uh, illegally into the European Union. Uh, uh, and this was something which, at the height of the crisis 2015, was really making a big impact, and people got very worried about that in Europe. The message to the possible migrants was, of course, to say, uh, just come, we will cater for you. Uh, I remember Mr. Tusk went uh, to visit a refugee camp in Turkey, and the migrants were saying, uh, Mr. Tusk, when are the planes coming? Because Mrs. Merkel wants us to go to Europe and Germany. The second problem was that this was announced without any consultation with the others uh, in quite a spontaneous way, but the others were then being asked to help sort out the problem by accepting compulsory migrant quotas. So the conjunction of the two factors, uh, in my view, was problematic. But in other policies, such as in economic or foreign policy, Mrs. Merkel has often been criticized for her indecision and hesitation. 
to what extent uh, can this be explained by her own political thinking? And to what extent is this related to the fact that she was always a chancellor in a federal republic, in a coalition government, never really a directly elected leader like, for instance, the president of France? Three points here. The first one is, you are very right to refer to the different systems of Germany and France. A German chancellor is a very powerful figure, but not in the same sense as the president of the French Republic. She has to cope with a strong Bundestag. She has to cater for sometimes difficult coalition partners. And she has to deal with very strong lender who work together in the Bundesrat. In other words, it is more difficult for a German chancellor than for a French president to improvise or to develop a grand vision. She has to more carefully prepare the ground for doing this. The second point is uh, about personality. She is a very calm person, very rational, with a scientific background. She wants to understand all the aspects of a file before taking a stance. I remember that right up to 2019, uh, she was quite reserved about moving to a reduction of minus 55 of greenhouse gas emissions. At one of the meetings in 2019, she said, I'm sorry, I have to stop you. I cannot today accept this because I do not know what it implies. I will study it and we'll talk about it later. And in, she said in German, ich will keine Katze im Sack kaufen, which means that I'm not going to be blindfolded into accepting something I can't master. The third point is that the files you mentioned uh, are for historic reasons. Um, files where Germany has very strong convictions that are not the same as those in France. So in terms of the running of the economy, there is a difference uh, between the two. The Germans are more keen to avoid deficits than the French. It's a different kind of culture. And as far as foreign policy is concerned, or particularly uh, military expeditions abroad, the Germans are, for reasons we can easily understand, uh, very reluctant. Now, to French people who are not familiar with how Germany functions, this can be baffling and it can sometimes, and it is sometimes seen as Germany not wanting to cooperate with France. Uh, and there maybe Ms. Merkel could at times have shown a bit more empathy in her comments on French positions. In her speech at the College of Europe in 2010, Mrs. Merkel called for a substitution of the community method by a union method. In her recent article for Klingendal, Ulrike Gero suggests that by doing this, Mrs. Merkel shifted the political weight from the European Commission and the European Parliament to the European Council. Was, to what extent was this Mrs. Merkel's way of asserting Germany as a hegemon in Europe? Not at all, in fact, uh, because she was just stating the obvious. I think it says a lot about some of the academic discourse in Europe that this should have produced such big surprise. This is because this academic discourse very often oscillates between uh, two extreme positions, which are both of them wrong. Uh, the Union is not a federal state, but it's not either a simple uh, intergovernmental organization. Uh, it is a union of states and peoples, or you could say of states and citizens, uh, with different layers of legitimacy. Of course, the European Council and the Council, they are institutions which allow the representatives of the national governments 
to take a position uh, uh, as far as the union files are concerned. Now, the citizens can, of course, also influence uh, what happens in the European Union via their directly elected uh, members of parliament uh, in the European Parliament. On the question of the community method and the governmental method, you or Ulrike Gero give the impression that there is a choice between them in certain situations. You can either do that or that. No, there is no choice, because the choice is dictated by what the treaty says. If you have an integrated policy, then the community method applies. If you have an intergovernmental policy, like foreign security, it doesn't apply. It's the working method is intergovernmental. So they coexist together. And this is, I think, what Mrs. Merkel wanted to say about uh, when she talked about a union method. Last remark, I don't think that Mrs. Merkel had to shift the power from somewhere to the European Council for a very simple reason. Since its creation in 1974, the European Council has been the main body where the overall direction of the Union is being defined. After all, as I often repeat, it is composed of the most powerful and democratically legitimate leaders of the 27 countries, plus the President of the Commission. On foreign policy, Matthew Karnischnik in Political claims that Mrs. Merkel's Germany has followed both sides of the fence strategy when it comes to Russia, China and in the Middle East, which is ultimately underpinned by an unspoken German foreign policy principle, export liberalis. How would you assess the evolution of Germany's relationship with Russia? I think, Miriam, it is a bit unfair to uh, reduce the policy towards Russia to an obsession of exports. Now, even if exports are, of course, of key importance for Germany and for the EU as a whole, there are many other issues in our relations with Russia where different factors are in play. History, very important for Germany as far as Russia is concerned. Geography, because Russia is going to be there. Geopolitics, what should be our attitude? I mean, is there a risk of pushing Russia towards China? Those are very important questions. I think that she was not sitting on the fence. Her position was firmly embedded in the EU position and helped, of course, fashion the EU position. Now, it's true that there are divergences of views. Poland wants a tougher line towards Russia, and it's perfectly uh, understandable why they do this. Others put more emphasis on dialogue and keeping the channels open. I think that in spite of those divergences, in the end, the Union does have a policy. Look, the Union managed to agree on sanctions after what happened in the Ukraine, which is still in force, and they do so even though not every single member country is absolutely convinced that it's the best uh, method. As far as the Ukraine is concerned, I think the overall EU policy, of course, is to help Ukraine as much as possible. I could maybe act more specifically as far as Germany is concerned that here uh, it is important that Germany works towards making sure that the Nord Stream 2 project does not have negative consequences on the Ukraine. This calls for a question on Mrs. Merkel's relationship with Eastern EU member states. In some ways, she was careful not to leave them behind, for example, during the discussions on deepening the Eurozone. On other occasions, however, Germany's actions were much uh, less coordinated with Eastern EU member countries. For example, when it comes to migration policy or the war in Ukraine or the construction of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, 
Do you think Germany speaks enough with the Eastern EU countries? I think that Mrs. Merkel has never stopped talking to Eastern European and Central and Eastern European members, whom she knows, of course, very well. She was raised in the GDR. She has some uh, Polish uh, family background. I remember once when she was asking President Tusk to tell her how to pronounce her Polish family name. Incidentally, uh, she was a strong proponent of making President Tusk president of the European Council, which was a very strong political signal towards Central uh, and Eastern Europe. More generally, she's someone who believes in dialogue, including uh, with uh, countries she disagrees with, whether they are member countries or outside countries. She likes the confrontation of ideas, and she's very keen on mutual respect. Now, concerning the euro area, you're absolutely right that Mrs. Merkel has always insisted, whenever possible, when there is a euro meeting, which normally should take place at 19, that the outs were invited as observers, so as not to have a cleavage and not to have a, a complete division uh, within uh, the uh, European Union. Now, having said all of this, I think we should be clear, the Union is not some fairy tale land where everybody loves everybody and everybody agrees on everything. Uh, um, it is a Union where there are differences. They're being recognized. There is a mutual respect, but in the end, there is a strong political will to find a common position which is in the interest of everyone. When it comes to China, how do you reconcile Germany's awareness of grave human rights violations in China with its strong promotion of EU-China investment agreements? Why hasn't this highly pragmatic stance changed even after China has refused to investigate the origins of the COVID-19 outbreak? There is a strong, uh, constant debate within the EU on how to best tackle China. And again, you have different views. This also happens uh, when we talk to the Canadians, our friends, or the Americans, and uh, you know, we're all struggling with the question on how to tackle China. Now, the fact of the matter is that China is becoming a major superpower, whether we like it or not. It is clear that uh, uh, some of their values clash with ours. Uh, and we do not see eye to eye, as far as that is concerned. Uh, if you take an idealistic stance, or if you uh, use uh, what Max Weber used to call the ethics of conscience, then of course uh, you can say we should not have any dealings with those people because it's really against our conviction. The problem is when you're in government, it's a bit more complicated to take such a position. You really have to think very hard on whether you want to stop talking to China. I'll just give you one example. As far as climate change is concerned, which more than 90% of our population wants us to go very far and to convince the world to take major steps, well, if China is not on board, this will come to nothing. And we're not going to save uh, the Earth. On COVID, yes, I do agree that we should strongly pressure China to better cooperate with uh, us on where this started, how it started. But again, if you cut off links, then you're not going to do that at all. Trade and investment are highly important for the European Union. We very much believe in trade and international investment. Uh, it's very important for us. Uh, if we only trade or do investment with countries which are like-minded, I don't think we will for very long stay a superpower in trade. We have to do certain uh, choices. The position adopted by the EU vis-a-vis -vis China is not that stupid, and this position is very much 
supported by Mrs. Merkel, that China uh, in some areas is a partner, in some other areas it's a competitor, and in yet other areas it is a rival. It is my firm conviction that by simply adopting moral stances, we are actually going to weaken our position and in the end, not only weaken our interests, but also our values. Many have called on Germany for a more visionary foreign policy. Would you like to see it more active on the global stage? Yes, but I would say I, I, I would like to see the EU more active on the global stage. And in order to do that, we need a more engaged and a more proactive Germany. It is clear that the many things happening in the world, uh, uh, be it in Afghanistan now what we've seen, the latest developments in terms of this trilateral agreement between uh, the United States, Australia, and the UK, there is a real challenge. They ask real questions about where will Europe be? How are we going to uh, cater for all of this? So we need a serious debate about that, and Germany is, of course, absolutely key. Uh, I was always very struck on how engaged Mrs. Merkel was about Africa. It's something which is not so well known, but she's been really very engaged. She went there quite frequently, so that's promising. But I do think that Germany has probably been too reluctant, including Mrs. Merkel, to take up some of France's offers in terms of security and defense. I think maybe the upcoming French presidency would be a good uh, opportunity for the new uh, German government to maybe work more with the French on this. Uh, the EU will try to adopt a strategic compass, for instance, um, on those issues. I also think that the French, the Germans, and all the others in the EU should work harder on how the EU is represented in international fora, because for the time being, we have a very strong quantitative showing, which does not necessarily translate into a qualitative one. Uh, and finally, I would say the external use and representation of the euro, it's about time that we really drew all the consequences from the fact that we do have a single currency. And this requires strong German commitment. Germany has been a major beneficiary of European integration in the past two decades. But the rulings of the um, German Constitutional Court question the competencies of the European Court of Justice. Do you see some opportunities that Mrs. Merkel might have missed in strengthening Germany's identification with Europe? Uh, first of all, I would say that Germany has, of course, been a major beneficiary over the last decades, not only the last two decades of European integration, but so has France, Luxembourg, Poland, and I think many others. I will make an obvious but important point. Every national leader uh, has to is paid to defend the views and interests of his or her country, while of course looking for mutually acceptable uh, solutions. It is not surprising that there is a controversial debate about uh, the euro in Germany and about uh, the ECB. Uh, what is surprising is that despite of this controversial debate, in the end, Germany has always supported uh, to move ahead with this. On Karlsruhe, first of all, one has to understand that the constitutional court in Karlsruhe, the Bundesverfassungsgericht, is really something very precious to Germany after the Second World War. It's totally independent. Uh, jurisdiction. And for Germany, this is highly, highly important. And every chancellor has to respect this. Now, I am worried about some tendencies sometimes in the Bundesverfassungsgericht to go a bit far in criticizing the European Court of Justice. This could be dangerous, particularly if 
uh, countries like we've recently seen, there are some tendencies in Poland to use this as a pretext uh, not to accept rulings on the rule of law, which would be, I think, quite dangerous. But I would say overall that uh, both the government in Germany but also the Bundesverfassungsgericht itself have gone out of their way whenever there is a ruling which is a bit sort of limit in this area to make sure that no negative consequences arise from that full European integration. I've tried to confront you with critical questions on Mrs. Merkel's record, but in all your answers you found arguments to praise her. In conclusion, what would be your overall retrospective view on Mrs. Merkel, also more at a personal level? I'm personally very pleased that Mrs. Merkel goes out on a high without losing an election. It's a rare, a rare privilege for a politician. I sincerely admire her, I have to say, for what she is and what she's done. She's a very human person, very thoughtful, intellectually curious, and she has a very wry sense of humor, um, which um, I've always liked very much. She's a very hard worker, invests a lot into talking with us. She prepares the ground, she communicates a lot and all of that. She, of course, likes power, like any politician, but not out of vanity. It is not that she wants to shine, but she likes power because she wants to do uh, and use power. She is not interested in pleasing journalists all the time, which I think is a strength for a politician. She's not very much into spinning. She does not hesitate to say when she doesn't know or she hasn't had the time to study something, which requires a certain amount of courage, I would say. And uh, I, I, I'm quite interested to see that many Europeans seem to like that. Overall, I think that her contribution to European integration over the last 16 years has been remarkable. She has played an absolutely key role uh, in all major decisions uh, at a time when the European Union was probably con confronting the biggest crisis it had ever encountered, uh, encountered after the Second World War. So I simply have to repeat, I admire her very much and I'm very grateful for having been part of this European adventure. I would not be pretentious enough to say besides Mrs. Merkel, but as a backbencher. Thank you very much, Jim, for this inside view. Thank you. And thank you all for watching this fifth episode of Europe Chats. We'll be back in October. See you next time. This podcast is co-funded by the Europe for Citizens program of the European Union. The European Commission support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the authors and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein.